this morning. Um, I've got a really long sermon this morning, and we don't have much time. So I'm going to just chop off one of the arms of this sermon, and we're going to see if it can, if it, if it'll work. We'll see what happens. Okay. Um, so actually, let me do the reading, so you know what we're talking about here. Uh, the second reading this morning uh, is a continuation of, of the first reading, or continuation of that same scene. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shall you labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning, And the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. This is the word of the Lord. Lord God, we pray that you would um, help us to attend to your word this morning, that we would meditate upon it, uh, that it would find root in our hearts, that it would uh, produce the the fruit uh, that you... Um, intend for it to produce this, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So in these uh, past weeks, we've, I think we're week number five in our series of sermons on providence, uh, we've talked about how all of creation is here for the purpose of bringing glory to God, that the heavens declare the glory of God. But it turns out it's not good enough that the planets and the stars and the oceans and the forest should silently declare the glory of God. God actually deserves better than that. And so we humans who were made in God's image, we are conscious and we are intelligent and we are free. 
in a way that nothing else in the universe is, we take up the praise of God as well. God is glorious, and we know He's glorious. But there's even more than God deserves than that. For it's possible for me to know that God is glorious, but I might begrudge Him that glory. You might know that the New York Yankees are a powerful team and still hate the New York Yankees. What God deserves is that we not only know that He is glorious, but that we are delighted that He's glorious and that we love Him for it. What God deserves is our conscious and free worship. And so God called for Himself a special people coming out of the line of Abraham who would know Him intimately and who would worship Him. And through that worship that happens Out of the people of Abraham, all of the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. And through the generations, many would be grafted into Abraham to to add to the worship of Almighty God. And so this morning, I want to talk about two of the big episodes in the history of Israel. Last week, we kind of talked about the whole history of Israel, the entire purpose of Israel in God's greater plan. But this week, I want to talk about two little, well, they're huge episodes in the history of Israel. I want to talk about the Exodus, and I want to talk about the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. Now, I think... It would be interesting to study this. I think the Exodus may be the best known story in the world. I think more people might know about how God rescued the descendants of Abraham from slavery in Egypt. They might, I think more people know this story than any other single story on the planet. Jacob, whose name was later changed to Israel, was a grandson of Abraham. And Jacob had 12 sons. And all of those 12 sons and Jacob settled in Egypt. And you'll recall, of course, you remember the story of Joseph, the 11th son of Jacob. He's sold by his jealous envious, covetous brothers to slave traders who were traveling down to Egypt. Now, it was a terrible thing that happened. It was a sin against Joseph, a sin, by the way, that was worthy of the death penalty under the law of Moses. And we hear Joseph then later in the story speaking to his brothers years later. He's saying to them, As for you, you meant evil against me in selling me as a slave, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people would be kept alive as they were today. You know this story. It's a perfect example of God's providence. God does not cause sin. God is not the author of sin. But God uses even sin to produce a good result. Which is why the scriptures can tell us, give thanks in all circumstances. What was God's good purpose that came out of Joseph's slavery? Well, his entire family was saved from a famine. And so Joseph and his brothers and all their children live in Egypt. They're separated uh, from Father Abraham by a number of generations now. But as time goes on... The favor that the children of Israel had enjoyed in Egypt is forgotten. And little by little, these people become oppressed as foreigners, as outsiders. And in time, they are actually enslaved. And the rulers in Egypt decreed that the population of the Israelites needed to be controlled. 
Now, back in those days, they didn't have abortion, but they had a procedure called exposure. A child would be born alive, but then it would be left outside to, to die or to be eaten by animals or maybe to be taken by some childless couple who wanted another child or perhaps to be used as a slave or worse. That's how Moses, a descendant of Abraham, born hundreds of years after the children of Israel settled in Egypt, that's how Moses came to be in that little boat. You remember, his mother made a boat for him and put him out on the water onto the Nile River. The mother couldn't keep the child. The law of Egypt decreed that the Jewish boys would be killed and so she cast them upon the water. Some tiny hope that her boy would survive and Pharaoh's daughter finds the boat and the baby and raises him as her own. That's the providential hand of God. A terrible, cruel, sinful, evil law that forced women to kill or to abandon their children. Pharaoh intended it for evil, but God used it for good. Because Moses came to live in the very house of the king who was oppressing his people. And then Moses is called by God to lead the people out. And after a showdown of plagues and negotiations between Moses and Pharaoh's, the Jews were permitted to leave only to then later be chased by the army of Egypt. And in a miracle that will never be forgotten, the children of Israel, now numbering more than a million people, cross the sea and the water closes in behind them, drowning the Egyptian army. It's a great story. God had a purpose in all of this. God had a purpose in the dramatic showdown between Moses and Pharaoh, in the further humbling of Pharaoh by the destruction of his army. We should not be surprised, by the way, that God might have a purpose in the dramatic showdown between Ukraine and its many allies and the godless Mr. Putin. Oh yes, Mr. Putin is powerful. He is also profoundly evil, but the creator of heaven and earth is all-powerful, and he is good, and good will win. One purpose for the drama of the Exodus was that the children of Israel, this special people that God had called for himself, that the children of Israel would know and would appreciate, would recognize, would salute the power of their God. When Moses first comes to the children of Israel and pitches his plan to get them out of Egypt, it was an, it was a difficult sell. They were used to What they were doing there, even though it was a kind of miserable life, at least they knew how to do that life. He brings this message from God. This is a message from God speaking through Moses to the people of God. He says, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians and I will deliver you from slavery to them and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people. I will be your God. And here's the point. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God. God's relationship with God's people began centuries before with the covenant that God made with Abraham. 
In the Exodus, God is cementing that relationship with Israel. And His stated purpose in bringing Israel out of Egypt, His stated purpose in rescuing the Israelites is so that they would be rich and powerful and all drive pink Cadillacs. Oh no, that's not what it is. It's that they would all be beautiful and famous and have 10 million followers on Instagram. Oh no, that's a different Bible. God's stated purpose in His salvation, in His rescue of the children of Israel out of Egypt, is that they would know that He is the Lord their God. That's the best thing that could ever happen to you. To know that the Lord is your God. Not to know that the Lord is God. To know that the Lord is your God. Do you know that? God could have left the Israelites in Egypt. He could have been their God way down in Egypt land. But the exodus was so huge, so ridiculously unexpected, so attention-grabbing, so exceptional, that it was impossible... To ignore God, it was impossible to not admire His power. And since God was doing this huge favor for His people, it would be impossible to not be joyful and grateful to God. What happens as soon as they cross over this sea is they begin to sing. The song of Miriam, the song of Moses, praises to God for the destruction of the army of Egypt. God had a plan. God's plan was that he would make a special nation for himself and that they would know him and that they would sing his praises. Sometimes in our lives, God rescues us in really dire circumstances. And sometimes he does that to grab our attention. And while we never want to ask for dire circumstance. While we always ask for relief from the troubles that we have, after we have been rescued by God from those circumstances, sometimes we praise God all the more, and we are actually grateful for the suffering. Why? Because it helps us to know God better, and to love Him more dearly, and to worship Him more truly, and there's nothing that's more important than that. I'm not saying that God created suffering For the people of Israel in Egypt. What I am saying is is that God used that suffering to bring the children of Israel to even greater blessing and to greater honor and to bring greater honor and glory to himself. That's called providence. That's God using the circumstances in this world, some of which are driven by sin, some of which are contrary to God's will. God did not create covid COVID is part of the fall, but you know what? God uses COVID for his own glory. It wasn't enough, however, that the children of Israel should know and honor God. Yes, they were his chosen people, but in fact, God's plans are bigger than just the chosen people. God also wanted Pharaoh and all of Egypt to know. And so, 
in a mystery of providence that's sometimes hard to wrap our minds or perhaps our will around, God also hardened Pharaoh's heart. That means that God caused Pharaoh to be stubborn and to not give in to the requests of Moses. Why? Because God wanted to beat him up even worse so that he would know who God is. The longer that the Russians and Putin mess around in that hornet's nest in the Ukraine, the more they're going to suffer. Could it be that God has a purpose in mind for Russia too? And we might ask, is it fair for God to harden the heart of Pharaoh just so he can beat him up more? Is it fair for God to harden Pharaoh's heart so that Pharaoh doesn't give in to the requests of God and then God punishes Pharaoh even more? Is that fair? Well, can a pot argue with the potter about what kind of pot he's going to be? God wanted not only his chosen people to know him, but he also wanted the Egyptians, who were the most powerful nation on earth at that time, to know him as well. Exodus 7, 5 says, The Egyptians shall know that I am God. But it doesn't stop there. God also wants the other nations, the more minor nations of the world, to know about him. And he uses the Exodus to spread his fame. What story is more well-known than the Exodus? I do think it is the most famous story in the entire world. God says to Pharaoh, the most powerful man on the earth at that time, he says to him, for this purpose, I have raised you, Pharaoh, up to show you my power. Why? So that my name will be proclaimed in all the earth. When the spies get to Jericho, Rahab already knows the reputation of Yahweh. So God's plan is working. His fame is spreading. Yes, it's important for the children of Israel to know God. But it's also important for God's fame to spread throughout the entire world. And God did that through his confrontation with the most powerful man and the most powerful nation on the earth at that time. So that his fame would spread to the ends of the earth all to the glory of God. In our reading this morning, we have part of the story of receiving the Ten Commandments and the other parts of the Law of Moses. There are 613 commandments, by the way. It's funny to think about Jews living without the Ten Commandments, which they did for hundreds of years. Part of the fulfillment of God's purposes for the Jews is giving them the Law. The law shapes our behavior. It shapes our mind and our character. Psalm 119 is a meditation on the, on the law. You should read it. You should go through that. Each of, it's the longest chapter in the Bible. And it's all about how wonderful God's law is. We become a certain way over time because of how we live in a habitual way. The people of God are who they are. Because of the law of God. Think about the Sabbath for a minute. 
Think about how keeping the Sabbath marks us as the people of God. Tell someone that you can't go to soccer practice on a Sunday. And they'll look at you like you lost your mind or like you're a Christian. The law of Moses becomes the cornerstone of Jewish life and even more the and even more than their descent from Abraham and even more than the promised land it is the law the Torah which defines the people of God now this morning i want us to look uh just at the first and the last commandment because they actually form a bookend that hold together the whole of the law. The first commandment. You shall have no other God before me. Well, what does that mean? Well, it's explained in the second commandment. You shall not make for yourself any graven image, any carved image, or any likeness of anything in the heaven above or that's in the earth beneath or that is under the water of the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I am the Lord your God, and I am a jealous God. Which is an interesting idea. It's not an idea that would come to you naturally that God would be jealous. I remember having a conversation with a pastor in our former denomination, the pastor of a church not so many miles from here. His church is now an Islamic mosque. We were talking about whether or not we should take seriously what God had said about human sexuality. And he says, oh, come on. God couldn't possibly care about what we are doing in our bedrooms It's not natural to think that the creator of the universe would even notice what we're doing. So why would he be jealous? In fact, in the ancient world, the gods were quite unconcerned about exclusive worship. And pagans are famously promiscuous when it comes to their religious affections. If you worship Baal, there's no reason why you can't have an Asherah pole too. What Hindu worships only one God? That doesn't make any sense. You have a God who brings you money and one who brings you fertility and one who makes you beautiful. Different gods do different things. To the pagan mind, serving only one God makes no more sense than having only one color in your rainbow or one tool in your toolbox. But the God of Abraham is different. He's jealous. In many places, God describes himself as the husband of Israel. And when Israel fell into paganism, as it often did, he called their idolatry adultery. So the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me, is a call not only for God to be supremely exalted in Israel, but also for Israel as the spouse of God to be supremely and completely satisfied in God. It's a call for a kind of marital fidelity to God. For our relationship with God to be right, it must be exclusive. When we're in a right relationship with God, we are satisfied with God. We are not attracted by the things that compete with God. Idolatry is infidelity. 
But our satisfaction with God, our fidelity to our covenant relationship with God is worship. And it brings honor to God. The honor that he deserves when we're delighted with God. John Piper puts it this way. When a wife is satisfied in her husband and never looks for satisfaction elsewhere, she magnifies the worth of her husband. And his jealousy is never stirred. Her supreme enjoyment of her husband is her exaltation of his worth. And that exaltation is the point of the first two commandments. It's all for the glory of God. The more we are satisfied with God, the more that we delight in God, the more that we actually fulfill our purpose as human beings created in the image of God. That's the message of the first Two commandments. Now let's go to the end. Bookends. That hold this whole law together. The tenth commandment. You shall not covet. Which is also a very strange law. I'm guessing there's not a single country. On the whole earth. That has a law like it on its books. That you shall not desire things owned by other people. Isn't this what market capitalism is all based on covetousness isn't this what madison avenue spends all of its time trying to create in us desire for things that other people have what is it about covetous desire that makes it illegitimate why is it wrong for me to desire what you have why is it wrong for me to be envious or jealous of you Well, the answer is found in the first two commandments. They say, have no other gods before me. Do not let anything compete with me for your attention. Covetousness is desiring things in such a way that we lose our contentment with what we have, with what God has given us. God has given me this wife. And if I desire another man's wife, I am not content with God's provision. God has given me this life. And if I desire a different life, I am not content with God's provision. Paul says, I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in each and every circumstance, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or want. I can do all this through Christ who strengthens me. Oftentimes people just quote that last part, but they don't talk about the contentment part. Hebrews 13.5, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Because God said, I will never leave you, nor will I forsake you. Why am I able to be content? Because God provides. Contentment is the opposite of covetousness. And notice we can be content through Him who gives us strength. We can be content because God will never leave us or forsake us. Writing to Timothy, his protege, Paul says, Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world and we take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. When we are satisfied in God's providential care of our circumstances, we are also satisfied with God. We're not grumbling against God. 
You'll recall that the Israelites were great grumblers. They grumbled against God. This was their sin in the wilderness. God had saved them from slavery in Egypt, but they were complaining because they didn't have melons anymore. Covetous discontent is a form of idolatry. It's a sign of dissatisfaction with God. When God is not enough, oh man, I just want that over there. We find other gods. Here's what Colossians 3.5 says. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly. And by the way, there are three enemies. There's the flesh. There's the world. And then at the bottom, there's Satan. Okay, the flesh is what leads us astray. The world is telling us false things. And Satan exploits those two things. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness. This is idolatry. All of those earthly things are idolatrous because we value them alongside or in front of God. We're not satisfied with God. And so we turn to other things and our relationship with those other things compromises our relationship with God. You can't have a relationship with your wife if you're having a relationship with another woman. You can't have a good relationship with God if your needs are being met somewhere else. God is a jealous God. He requires fidelity. He requires that we be satisfied in Him. He requires that He be our supreme treasure. Part of finding our contentment is seeing that God is the King of the universe and that He has providentially organized our lives. Thank you, Naoma, for bringing your testimony this morning. This was a testimony of providence of the circumstances, none of which you would ask for. But even in all of those things is the sweetness because God is all-sufficient. God has providentially organized our lives so that we have exactly what we need. We're satisfied. The beginning and the end of the Ten Commandments is that God should be exalted over all things, that we should find our deepest satisfaction in God. We have three enemies. The desires of the flesh, the world, which plays on those desires. That's Madison Avenue. And lastly, the devil who exploits our fleshly desires. Fleshly desires are desires for things other than God. Fleshly desires are always idolatrous. And I just want us to close now. I wish we had more time. Because if we did, I would have a call to the altar on this. Because I think I think there are desires that we need to lay down. I think we're hungry for things that are competing with God in our lives. 
Bible says if we seek first the kingdom of God, all these other things are going to fall into place. And when Christ is our all in all, we don't have to fill our lives up with other stuff. So why don't we just spend a few minutes where we are in prayer before God. Let us pray. Lord God Almighty, you are a big God and you are maker of heaven and earth. And we know that in our minds. And yet we confess that in our flesh we so often are desiring other things. Things that you have not given us, things that you've not appointed for us to have. And in our dissatisfaction, we pursue those things with idolatrous covetousness. And we pull away from you. And then we wonder why our relationship with you is so ah, weak. Lord, I pray that you would grow larger in our lives. And I pray that the things of this world would grow strangely dim. Lord, we came into this world without anything. And we're going to leave it with nothing. But those things that we've done in your name. Lord, I pray that when the day comes that we stand before you to be judged. That you will be able to say, well done, my good and faithful servant. I pray that you would give us crowns of glory. Because we're going to want to throw those crowns at your feet. Lord, forgive us of our covetousness. Forgive us of our desire of the things that you haven't given us. Let us be content in you. As we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.